The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Hi, everyone. I don't know about uh, how it is in your little spaces right now, but the snowiness outside and the chill outside is slightly penetrating my space so I can feel some element of the outdoors, even in uh, my own home. Uh, And yet when I'm looking at everyone here, what I feel is a sense of warmth in everybody's home. So thank you all for being here. Um, So I'm going to just start by reading a couple of verses from our study text, uh, the Song of Enlightenment, Shadoka. Since I abruptly realized the unborn, I have had no reason for joy or sorrow at any honor or disgrace. I have entered the deep mountains to silence and beauty in a profound valley beneath high cliffs. I sit under the old pine trees. Zazen in my rustic cottage is peaceful lonely, and truly comfortable. So I find this a very uh, beautiful section of the song. Um, And in part, I think, because I have a longing to be in just such a rustic cottage in the deep mountains of silence and beauty. Uh, Maybe some of that is a little bit Uh, of an escape fantasy. Um, And yet I think, I don't think that passage is about escape. So I don't know about uh, how you all have been feeling, but I've been finding life uh, difficult these days, painful. And it's not so much what's happening in my personal life, but Really, it's the continuous awareness of all of the pain and suffering everywhere uh, in the world. Uh, Catastrophe and crisis happening now, and it feels uh, like more to come, not done. And in fact, it seems like every single Dharma talk that I've heard recently has included a recitation of all the reasons we might now be feeling this collective and individual distress. Um, The waves of COVID, the seemingly intractable political divides in our nation, the painful and ongoing effects of racial and economic injustice and the manifestations of climate change that we see in the form of fires and floods and droughts and fleeing refugees. To myself, I've been calling all of these things by the name crisis and trying to understand how it is that we can live in this constant state of crisis, one with no foreseeable end. If you remember the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we studied uh, a few years ago, it centers on the situation in which the layman Bodhisattva Vimalakirti has fallen ill. And at one point in the Sutra Manjushri, 
another bodhisattva, asks him why he's ill. And Vimalakirti explains that he's ill from all the illness and delusion and suffering in the world. And he tells Manjushri that when a child falls ill, their parents also become ill, ill with worry for the child, and only recover when the child recovers. Vimalakirti will only truly recover when all sentient beings are free from suffering. It's really the same idea that the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hammer stated as nobody's free until everybody's free. Or as Martin Luther King put it, no one is free until we all are free. And one thing I've realized is that this state of crisis may feel new to me, but it's really that that newness is really an illusion. Even in my childhood, I remember stories of famine and starving children in far parts of the world. And though no one made it clear to me that there were hungry children right where I was living, I'm sure on some level I did know that. My early adolescence was haunted by the Vietnam War and the sense of death and destruction that emanated from that and wrongness. And there was the nuclear threat that hovered over everything. The idea that our own governments might take an action that would completely destroy all life on earth was just part of my growing up. And there have been so many innumerable crises and disasters in my lifetime. A continuous crisis, one might say. So what's, what's different now? I think one thing that is different is that a veil which kept me from noticing these things more intimately has dropped. And I don't think this is particular to me either. Many of us are unable to get our heads back into the comforting sand. But at the same time as I've been thinking about all this, I've been, uh, what's risen in my mind often is the story of Hakuin and the baby. So this is a story that I heard very early on in my time at the Zendo in someone's Dharma talk. And I tried to go find that Dharma talk actually as I was preparing for this, but it turns out we don't really keep um, them going all the way that far back on the current website, which I was sorry to see, but they are just like uh, moments. So there's that too. Um, but basically the story goes like this. So Hakuin is one of the great Zen teachers of the 18th century, and he's living in a relatively small village. Uh, and one day, uh, some villagers come to him, some parents with their daughter, and their daughter is pregnant. And she has named Hakuin as the father. And when the baby is born, they bring the baby to Hakuin to take and hand it to him. And he, uh, he takes it in. And he raises the child. He, he learns how to care for a baby. And he gets milk from the local village. And he gives, uh, he gives loving care to that child. And as we all know, to raise a baby, you have to love it. Uh, it doesn't work otherwise. Um, so a year later, the daughter finally confesses to her parents 
that the father of the child is another boy in the village and she wants to marry him and to raise the child. So they come back to Hakuin and they say, give us back the child. And he does, he gave them back the baby. And I told this story to a friend uh, a couple of weeks ago and she said something like, oh, I'll never have anything like that much equanimity. And I was surprised because I've never seen it as a story about equanimity. And when you, when you read the version uh, that's part of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which is a collection of, uh, of Zen teachings by, uh, that were put together by Nyogen Senzaki and uh, Paul Reps, at each turn of events in the story, what Hakuin says is, is that so? He's accused of being the father, is that so? Here's the baby, is that so? You want the baby back, is that so? And so maybe that is a form of equanimity or seems to be, and it clearly uh, Hakuin is teaching in those moments. Um, but when I first heard this story, what I connected with were Hakuin's feelings. This baby was a complete and total interruption to his life as he knew it. And yet he accepted the reality of what had happened. The baby needed care. He took the baby in without hesitation. He loved the baby, at least in my imagination he did. And then when the, the, the parents came to take the child back, he handed it over again without hesitation. But in that unhesitating act, must have been loss and grief and another complete upending of everything he expected in his life. So what struck me about the story was Hockman's unhesitating response to reality as it offered itself to him. To me, it was a story of radical acceptance of intimacy with reality. So recently, as some of you uh, probably know, I was handed a kind of baby. Uh, during our winter session, during Tokyo's Dharma talk, as it happened, uh, a parakeet flew up to my window right there, uh, wanting to get in out of the cold. It was a cold day. And I quickly discovered that parakeets can't survive in a New York winter. So I started to try to coax it inside and eventually I succeeded. Yeah. And uh, I put out some notices and I registered this parakeet in the New York City has a lost and found pets database. Um, but no, no one came forward to claim their parakeet. Um, and now I have a parakeet. <laughs> And in fact, it's a very young parakeet. So it's a baby, just a few months old. My current guess uh, is that this parakeet, a budgie, was an escaped Christmas gift. It was just a couple of days after Christmas, um, let loose by some inexperienced person, perhaps even a child. Uh, 
and it's not banded or identified. Um, and though it let me bring it inside when it was really cold and hungry, it's actually not particularly tame or used to being handled. And I, I'm, I'm working every day now to get it used to being handled so it can safely be transported and cared for. I've named this parakeet Tori, which is Japanese for bird. And I can tell that Tori is young, uh, but I'm not sure of their sex. It's hard to tell when they're young, and I'm obviously uh, not an expert yet on parakeets. Um, so I'm going, I'm trying out they, them pronouns for Tori uh, for the time being. And Tori is like bright, bright, bright yellow and green. And now that they're relaxing into their new home, they make all kinds of sounds and chirps and warbles and squawks, and they sing to themselves quietly while they're playing with their toys. Um, as it, and it, as it happens, I, gr I grew up with parrots. Uh, my mother loved birds, loved all kinds of uh, animals, especially exotic animals. <laughs> um, and uh, we lived in Hawaii. And when she saw a bird for sale, she had very little restraint. <laughs> so we had quite a few parakeets, parrots, uh, big parrots in my house uh, growing up. And, you know, as the child, uh, I took care of them largely. So I love parrots and I love other birds, but I've, I've never felt uh, easy about keeping a bird caged. Um, and yet now this bird uh, has come to me and it can't survive in the world. So I'm keeping it. <laughs> um, it's kind of, uh, it's mildly upending my life, not not like Hawkwinds, but but mildly upending my life. And I'm having to learn how to care for Tori and adjust my life, adjust my dog to this new uh, reality, to respond, to become intimate with it. Uh, I've been trying to teach Tori uh, to fly around the room, around my bedroom, which is apparently something that, you know, proper parakeet keepers do. Parakeets come out of their uh, little cages every day in a healthy parakeet environment. Um, so we're trying to learn to do that, but Tori is afraid to come out of the cage. And uh, most days I don't succeed uh, in coaxing them out. But yesterday I put on, for the first time, some recordings of parakeet sounds in the wild. And all of a sudden, whew, flying around my room, uh, it was this beautiful green and yellow bird looking here and there. I'd set up perches around, hopefully, <laughs> and suddenly they were sitting on the perches uh, trying to find trying to find those parakeets that they could hear. So as they were flying, I was I was so delighted, delighted by the flight and delighted to coax them out and let them stretch their wings. Um, but I was also sad because they couldn't find the parakeets that they heard. And parakeets are really social. Uh, they, they flock, they come from Australia. Um, and uh, now I'm, I'm even more worried that my parakeet is lonely. <laughs> um, it may be, you know, as I'm researching how to, how to care for a parakeet, it, it, may, it may happen that what I need to care for one parakeet is get a second parakeet. So we will see. Um, and in any case, I'm already in love. So I can easily imagine 
what it would be like if the original owners finally found me and wanted their parakeet back. Um, would I be anything like Hakuin under those circumstances? There's something immediately joyful about Tori. And in my mind's eye, I keep seeing that first moment when they flew up to the window and that startling like flash with their wings outspread and their tail long, just presenting themselves. This bright color in the winter sky, uh, like a flash of enlightenment, you might think. And sometimes I think reality does present itself to you like that. And sometimes it presents itself to you like another wave of COVID. And sometimes it presents itself to you in the form of a dying friend. Bokashu, in his recent Dharma talk, likened reality to a school cafeteria where we look at the menu every day to see what's being served, often enough with real dismay. <laughs> Reality presenting itself to us in all of its forms. And Bokashu really encouraged us to eat everything. Eat everything on the menu. And he talked about the way in which this total reality supports us fully as a kind of supreme meal crisis, despair, joy, fear, grief, all of it. Shinryu Roshi in his uh, talk on Thursday night, his beautiful talk, uh, invoked one of the closing lines of Shadoka to talk a little bit about this thing. Don't belittle the sky by looking through a pipe. And he was talking about the way our suffering originates in a false idea of who we are, a narrow sense of self through which we see a narrowed world. When we misunderstand who we are, when we identify ourselves with our small ego, we cut off awareness of the larger self, which is really nothing less than all of reality. So to me, the practice of Zazen, our practice, which we all just had a chance to do a short time ago and inhabit, so it's fresh for us. To me, that practice is just an opportunity to become intimate with reality. So just by sitting still, by being silent, reality rushes right in and fills us. We're filled with the noise of our own thoughts and feelings. And we are filled with a kind of silence that simultaneously pervades everything. When the Shodoka says, I have entered the deep mountains to silence and beauty in a profound valley beneath high cliffs. I sit under the old pine trees. Zazen in my rustic cottage is peaceful, lonely, and truly comfortable. This to me is a reminder that the practice of Zazen is, as Dogen uh, liked to say, 
the Dharma gate of joy and ease. Zazen itself is the deep mountain and the profound valley. It is the pine tree and the rustic cottage. You don't need to step out of your life to encounter this. It's right here. In my New York apartment, in your house, wherever you're living right now. It's your own body. Our zazen inherently includes everything that we know about. Everything we read on social media or in the news this morning. Everything we feel. Everything we're responding to at every minute. It includes everything that Bokashu's cafeteria serves. It sits in the middle of continuous crisis. Our Zazen very naturally accepts the baby when it is handed to us. And it very naturally lets the baby go. And it very naturally includes all the feelings that arise in response. Zazen is simply reality unfolding, the full self unfolding. So I'm just going to end uh, now with a few more verses of Shadoka, um, which is a, a section which invokes this sense of Zazen. Uh, the song talks about Zazen just in three places. So this is uh, one of them. This is that sense of Zazen as continuous practice in continuous crisis and continuous silence. Right here, it is eternally full and serene. If you search elsewhere, you cannot see it. You cannot grasp it, you cannot reject it. In the midst of not gaining, in that condition, you gain it. It speaks in silence. In speech, you hear its silence. The great way has opened and there are no obstacles. If someone asks, what is your sect and how do you understand it? I reply, the power of tremendous prajna. People say it is positive. People say it is negative, but they do not know. A smooth road, a rough road, even heaven cannot imagine. I have continued my zazen for many eons. I do not say this to confuse you. <laughs>